Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Corey Gibson, uh, your host here, and today I'd like to welcome Professor Cairns Craig. Uh, Professor Cairns Craig is Glucksman Professor of Irish and Scottish Studies at the University of Aberdeen, Uh, holds an Order of the British Empire, is a Fellow of the British Academy and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Professor Craig is a giant in Scottish literary studies and in modernist literary studies. His uh, books include Yeats, Eliot Pound and the Politics of Poetry, 1982, Out of History, Narrative Paradigms in Scottish and English Culture, 96, The Modern Scottish Novel, 1999, uh, Associationism and the Literary Imagination from the Phantasmal Chaos, 2007, Intending Scotland, Explorations in Scottish Culture since the Enlightenment, 2009, uh, Professor Craig was also the general editor of a full four-volume history of Scottish literature at Aberdeen University Press between 1987 and 1989. Uh, furthermore, Professor Craig has uh, been on the editorial board of the influential uh, Scottish arts magazine Concrastus from its founding in 1981. He was an associate editor of Radical Scotland uh, and was the publisher of the Edinburgh Review from 2001 to 2005. However, if we were to list all of Professor Craig's accomplishments, that would be the entire podcast. So I'm going to skip now to Professor Craig's new book, which is titled The Wealth of the Nation, Scotland, Culture and Independence, and is out with Edinburgh University Press this year in 2018. Uh, I wanted to start, uh, Professor Craig, if uh, it's okay, by congratulating you on the nomination for the Saltire Research Book of the Year Award. Uh, that's very pleasing. It's the... Um it's actually the History Book of the Year. Is it History Book is, of the Year? Sorry. Yep, which is an even nicer uh, accolade since uh-huh. I'm not a historian and historians constantly attack my work for my <laughs> lack of historical awareness. So, <laughs> so it was quite nice. Well, here's, here's hoping they'll be laughing out, out the other side of their faces after, the, after this then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Do you mind if I call you Cairns or would you prefer Professor Craig? No, that's fine. That's fine. Cairns. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I wonder if uh, we could start perhaps... Uh, by asking you to just tell us a little about yourself and how you came to write this particular book, The Wealth of the Nation. Uh, That could be a very long story, but I'll make it a short story. (laughs) Uh, uh, Almost everything about my career stems from uh, the failure to establish a Scottish Parliament in 1979, And one of the arguments uh, that was put at the time was that Scotland uh, not only was a poor country, uh, but had nothing of any significant interest in its past that was relevant to the future of a modern, developed economy. And uh, that is an argument which has circulated 
uh, many times in discussions about uh, Scotland, its parliament, its independence. And so I wanted to put the opposite argument uh, that, in fact, Scotland is not only a wealthy nation in terms of its economy, but that it is a particularly wealthy nation in terms of its culture. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's was the independence referendum in 2014 a sort of animating uh, force in the conception of this book too? Yes, uh, it was <laughs> it was originally <laughs> intended to be a contribution to the 2014 referendum debate, uh, but I was heavily engaged in many other things at the time including uh, referendum politics. Uh, and so it has only appeared now in a different version from what it would have been then. Mm, of course, you have to respond to the fallout of the result of the, the twenty fourteen election and everything, uh, the referendum and everything that's followed since. I uh, yes, that's... just as a way of um, acclimatizing, perhaps some of our listeners who aren't as uh, involved in uh, debates around Scottish literary history. Uh, as as you are and as uh, I myself am, I think it might be worth noting before we uh, go any further that there has long been a debate and certainly uh, it was one very much punctuated and promoted by the failed uh, referendum in 1979 for a devolved Scottish Parliament and uh, again by the 2014 referendum around the relationship between culture and politics in Scotland. Of course, Scottish cultural history has long been a great field for trying to understand nationhood, national self, uh, national consciousness. But this uh, debate, and I uh, hope you'll agree that I think this is what you're contributing towards here, is this idea of Scotland as being a, a great case study, if you like, in trying to understand whether culture or politics, uh, which comes upstream of the other, if you like. Uh, and so this, this book is contributing to that in uh, rather an important way, I think. Well, certainly uh, one of the paradoxes of modern Scotland is that the rise and success of the Scottish National Party mm -hmm. uh, has uh, been an interesting example of nationalism without culture, mm -hmm. in that the Scottish National Party has an entirely economic view of the nature of Scottish independence. It shows no public concern with culture as such. And a, one of the striking things about the enormous upsurge in Scottish historiography since 1999 and the establishment of the Scottish Parliament is that almost none of major histories of Scotland treat culture as an important part of Scottish history. Indeed, you will struggle to find references to Scottish culture in almost any of the major historical accounts of Scotland. And it seemed to me that this was both a, a blighting view of uh, Scotland's past, but also a, a failure to to realise the importance of culture to a the survival of Scotland as a nation. Why, after three hundred years of union, should it not just have disappeared 
into being part of England, mm-hmm. as many people wished it to be. And why has uh, Scottish politics diverged so significantly from British politics uh, since the 1960s? And uh, the answer to both those questions, I think, is the power of culture and the importance of culture and the fact that uh, culture has been the means by which Scottish people have continued to develop and assert their difference from uh, the rest of the population of the United Kingdom. I think one of the things that makes your book such a fascinating read is that its treatment of cultural economy or cultural politics is so expansive. I really can't um, emphasize that enough for our our listeners that this is a book that comprises not only literary history uh, and economic history, but the history of uh, philosophy, of uh, a Scotch metaphysics, uh, as, as it's uh, referred to in your book, but also the history of science, including its implications in colonialism. Uh, and yeah, a, a great deal of disciplines are, are brought into this discussion. I think this is quite maybe quite a nice moment to pivot to Adam Smith, who, um, well, as your book uh, testifies, gave you your title here, because you, you open with Adam Smith and you do return to him. And uh, at the risk of Spoiling the ending uh, for our listeners, one of the the points you arrive at in your conclusion is that drawing from Smith's own work, there's an element of the uh, aesthetic uh, and uh, culture in the sense of values and uh, morality or morals in the old-fashioned sense of the word that underpins his economic philosophy too. And so that your argument based on Scotland's political, intellectual, philosophical, economic independence is bound up in this cultural one, sort of comes full circle like that. I wonder if you could tell us a little about the importance of Adam Smith to this project. Okay. uh, I suppose the book is meant to counter Mm -hmm. a version of Adam Smith which has been much used in... Uh, British politics over the last 30 years, uh, with Adam Smith being the representative of uh, and justification for uh, free market economics. Uh, And uh, this is based on the Chicago School reading of Adam Smith, which almost entirely neglects the ethical and the intellectual side of Adam Smith's contributions and focuses only on uh, the division of labor and the creation of wealth as as Adam Smith's achievement. And that Chicago reading of Adam Smith has had profound consequences in the neoliberal interpretation of how we should understand modern economies. And so I guess it's a kind of running subtext through my book Mm. that this misinterpretation of Adam Smith leads us to a a false valuation of what counts as wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, For Adam Smith, wealth is not about GDP and how efficient an economy is, it's about the health of the nation. 
mm-hmm. and it's about the quality of life that a nation is able to uh, supply for its citizens. And uh, the, the, the reduction of Adam Smith to a simply economic uh, indicator of the creation of wealth seems to me have to have been an extraordinarily destructive element in British political life since the 1970s, 1980s. And one of the things I wanted to do was juxtapose Adam Smith's uh, uh, philosophy, his conception of human sympathy, etc., mm-hmm. against these modern interpretations of him. You, you put that very neatly in, um, in 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 chapter five when you you discuss not only the you know so-called invisible hand of the market, but the invisible hand that guides people or peoples to the pursuit of happiness. Um, it is interesting that one of those most celebrated phrases of Smith it doesn't come up that often, but even if you isolate those examples, it's not exclusively uh, commensurate with free market capitalism. <laughs> There's a lot more to Adam Smith than free market capitalism, Mm -hmm. and uh, the reduction of Smith to that single, as it were, focus Mm -hmm. uh, has been uh, part of the uh, of the Scottish Enlightenment Mm -hmm. of the 18th century that has allowed the Scottish Enlightenment to be adopted, Mm -hmm. the precursor of a free market capitalism that um, uh, none of the uh, major figures of the Scottish Enlightenment would have recognized mm-hmm. as part of their philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, it's a, yeah, if, uh, if one of the things you're responding to is a selective and quite ideologically informed reading of Scottish Enlightenment philosophy, I think it's important to note that that's, that selective um, reading is certainly... Certainly discriminating reading, but not selective reading in the sense of isolating or excluding things that might challenge your argument. That's not something that uh, your critics could level at you, I think, given that this book is so wide-ranging and that it draws these really fascinating lines from Scottish Enlightenment philosophy uh, through cultural, political, intellectual, philosophical movements right up to to the present day. I wonder if we can jump in now to, to, to chapter one, which is titled Cultural Capital and the Zenitean Empire. I wonder if you could give us a, a, a little breakdown of what you mean by both those terms, cultural capital and the Zenitean Empire. Well, uh, cultural capital is a common term in uh, the analyses of modern cultures, uh, and it provides, as it were, the resource upon which people build to create their notion of the future and where their uh, country is headed. And uh, there are many accounts of uh, Scottish history that assume that Scotland is a a bankrupt country Mm -hmm. uh, from the time of the Darien uh, event in the late 1690s when it was assumed that Scotland lost most of its wealth mm-hmm. in the effort to set up a colony uh, in the uh, in Panama, uh, to uh, loads of accounts of modern Scotland as uh, an impoverished country uh, that lives on handouts from mm-hmm. Westminster and that has 
contributed very little to the nature of modern culture. And what I wanted to oppose was this whole rhetoric of Scotland as poor or bankrupt Mm -hmm. by showing the ways in which uh, the country had accumulated a very significant cultural capital through the 19th century, Mm -hmm. which it then lost as a result of uh, the collapse of the British Empire, of the aftermath of the First and Second World Wars, Mm -hmm. and that it then had to rebuild its cultural capital uh, from the 1960s onwards, Mm -hmm. and that that has been a major driver of the development of Scottish culture in the modern period that much of the effort of Scottish culture has been to recover and reconstitute what was its lost cultural capital. And you can see that very clearly in a figure like Sir Walter Scott, who was the most influential novelist of the 19th century, but by 1914 was regarded as the great unread and had become irrelevant as far as most modern literary critics were concerned Mm -hmm. by the 1930s, 40s and 50s. And since uh, then, we have gradually been reconstituting our sense of how important and how valuable Scott was, Mm -hmm. both to Scottish culture and to European culture, and indeed to American culture, in the 19th century, uh, so that um, we are now in a position to better understand uh, the uh, cultural capital uh, which Scott, with which Scott endowed Scotland in the 19th century. So cultural capital is an accumulation of value which made Scotland an extraordinarily, in inverted commas, wealthy nation in the 19th century. And my argument um, is partly related to an issue, if I can just make a slight diversion here. Of course. Which is that in lots of modern accounts of Scotland, the 18th century is the golden age, and the 19th century is the age of lead. Mm -hmm. It is is an empty, useless kind of culture Mm -hmm. compared to 18th century culture. And it seems to me that that is simply an entirely mistaken view of um, the development of Scottish culture in those two centuries, and that uh, what I wanted to emphasize was why uh, people have read 19th century culture in this way, and they've read it in this way, I think, for uh, two reasons. One, they ignore the fact that Scotland was an imperial country in the 19th century, and that much of Scotland's cultural effort in the 19th century was the effort of expanding Scotland across the world. And secondly, that um, the way in which Scotland did this in the 19th century was by institution building. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if uh, having become a country which only exists because it has the separate institutions of education, Uh, law and church, Mm -hmm. that wherever Scots go uh, as migrants, what they do is they establish educational institutions, they establish universities, 
They establish botanic gardens. They are institution builders. Mm-hmm. And that's why I picked up the term Zenitean, which is the alternative Greek word for a diaspora. Mm-hmm. Uh, a diaspora is people who are forced out of their homeland, go elsewhere, but remember their homeland nostalgically and hope one day to return. Venetians go out to rebuild their homeland in a completely different place, and they are not in any way intending to return home. What they're doing is creating a version of the homeland in a new place. And it seems to me that in the 19th century, this is exactly what uh, Scots were doing across the world. They were building versions of Scottish institutions that became fundamental to uh, the hostlands mm-hmm. to which those Scots had migrated. And that the energy of that uh, outward expansion of Scotland has been read in modern historiography as a kind of emptiness mm. in Scotland, rather than it is part of the fulfilment of a sense of Scotland's importance to the world, because Scottish values have got a universal significance. And you can see this in the celebrations of the Burns centenary or the Scott centenary in the 19th century, when these celebrations go on across the world Mm -hmm. with the sense that these Scottish values are universal values. A man's a man for all that. Yes, yeah. But, yeah, that's a a fascinating note to to end on. It just seems to me that you very elegantly um, circumvented some of the... uh, some of the most sort of heated points of debate in these kinds of discussions around Scottish cultural and political history, precisely because people either emphasize perhaps a Scots uh, diaspora, if it's okay to call um, those who yeah. didn't represent. Sorry. Word, yeah. Well, no, sorry. I mean, I mean to, to particular, to particularize um, those who were forcibly moved during the clearances or the lowland clearances or what have you, who perhaps shored up this nostalgic longing that you mentioned, but at the same time, there are, people perhaps from a different um, socioeconomic class who are, who are Zenitean migrants, if you like, rather than a diaspora, who are, who are building and institutionalized Scotland uh, or institutions in a Scottish form elsewhere around the world, and that those things are happening concurrently and are part of the same story rather than things that we need to uh, decide which one is predominant. If uh, is, is that a fair assessment, do you think? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'm, the book emphasizes the Zenitean element because mm-hmm. so much has been written about the diasporic yes. element. Mm-hmm. So what I'm concentrating on is the founding of institutions, the spread of Scottish philosophy through the 19th century, the spread of Scottish science mm-hmm. um, as ways in which uh, Scots uh, translated uh, mm-hmm. their sense of Scotland into their sense of a set of values which could be enacted and fulfilled elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And of course, a great example of is uh, in, in North America and the universities' systems and also amongst the political philosophies of the Founding Fathers. And that's something you go into some, uh, some detail on too. 
I, uh, if you'll permit me a little anecdote, I have a, a friend I came up through undergraduate studies with who studied uh, political history, and he had an epiphany one day. He decided that all of contemporary uh, North America's woes were down to the fact that too many of the founding fathers were Dundonian. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we perhaps don't need to get into whether that's true or not. In um, well, probably uh, <laughs> uh, the more the more problematic thing was that so many of them were Freemasons. Yes, and that, that Freemasonry was one of the major Scottish exports through the 18th and 19th centuries, mm-hmm. and which carried with it an ideology of. Um, uh, fraternity, egality, etc., mm-hmm. uh, that um, uh, put Scott at the centre of uh, the founding institutions of many parts of the uh, both the first and second British empires. Mm. The, the one thing you, you don't seem to shy away from, which is is a great credit to the book, uh, is that that those. Um, Values were sometimes fairly narrowly defined <laughs> in practice um, by by the Zenitian migrants and others, perhaps. And that, I think that introduces some of the themes in the second chapter in the race of history, where you set out um, some of the foundations of race science. Uh, you know, a thoroughly debunked uh, branch of human knowledge. Now, of course. Um, although unfortunately back on the rise in some quarters, uh, but you set that out in its in terms of its uh, roots in Scottish enlightened, enlightenment thought. I wonder if you could sketch out the the issues there in chapter two for us. Well, uh, this mostly comes from a fairly wide scale debate over a footnote in uh, mm-hmm. one of David Hume's essays in which he says he doesn't think that uh, any of the uh, black races of the world could ever rise to the level of a civilization. Mm-hmm. And he compares that to the many uh, working men who uh, rise to be uh, important people in their society, in white societies. And this has been seized on as a symptom of uh, the Enlightenment's racism, Mm-hmm. And so what I try to trace is the way that race uh, flows through discussions of uh, the nature of society in Scottish writing, in the, particularly in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that this is a complex process because I, I take the example of uh, Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, which is read entirely differently Mm. by uh, different groups of people. On, by one group of people, it's read as a racist text, which uh, serves to highlight the superiority of Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Norman peoples mm-hmm. over uh, all others. And by others, it's read as a defense of uh, Jew Rebecca mm-hmm. and her religion, and uh, her values, mm-hmm. and that both these readings are possible, and that this is uh, very typical of the problem of dealing with race in the 19th century, uh, because race is, as it were, uh, a 
an evolving uh, supposed science mm-hmm. which offers uh, objective, serious knowledge of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it's a mythology uh, which justifies um, white superiority. Mm-hmm. And that uh, these two things are interconnected, but they are not necessarily easily uh, distinguished in their actual practice mm-hmm. at a particular point in time in the 19th century. I saw that uh, the the key figure in all of this is Robert Knox, uh, whose uh, whose study of race is often quoted as suggesting uh, that uh, Britain is the superior country in the world Mm -hmm. because of the nature of its racial makeup. But in fact, Knox used his racial theory to challenge the whole idea of the nation. Mm-hmm. He assumed that nations were inherently unstable because they contained mixed racial groups, and that um, if you were going to have political entities in the future, they would need to get rid of all the current nations of the world and reconstitute them along racial lines, which obviously mm. was impossible, mm. but um, it is easy to, as it were, target Knox and say this is a racist theory of British superiority, mm-hmm. when in fact he was using his race theory to challenge the whole nature of Britain as a political entity. And th- this is the notion that um, that Normans and Saxons and uh, Belgians and Celts uh, sort of inhabit different parts of the British Isles that don't necessarily correspond to national boundaries. Absolutely, is that right? yeah. yes. that, that uh-huh. Britain is made up of a series of different racial groups, mm-hmm. uh, and that um, uh, Britain as a political uh, entity does not correspond mm-hmm. to the boundaries of these racial types. Uh, the, the other stepping stone you, you have there between um, Hume and Lord Kames and the debate around polygenesis and, and monogenesis and what have you through to Scott and, there is re- and his reception in America is alongside Robert Knox, uh, Thomas Carlyle. And um, yeah, some fascinating passages that I had never encountered before, some really, really upsetting language uh, <laughs> in there too uh, in his discussion of a primordial continuity of England, uh, of Englishness. Yes. Uh, I mean, Carlyle is uh, another uh, very symptomatic figure in that, um, on the one hand, he is profoundly assertive of the value of Englishness Mm -hmm. as the continuity of a mature history. But at the same time, he is deeply conscious of the values of Scottish Calvinism and the need in England for them to learn those values if they're going to go on developing uh, as a nation. So on the one hand, he's working in London and enthusing about the qualities of Englishness. But on the other hand, he's trying to teach the English how to become more Scottish. They, this chap, this chapter made, has, a, has a fascinating pivot towards the end. After that discussion of Carlyle or Robert Knox and um, and, and Scott's novel Ivanhoe, where you, you turn to uh, 
the pageantry surrounding uh, George the Fourth's visit to, to to Scotland and the kind of political theatre that Walter Scott helped to institute there that has become sort of so infinite infamous in, in, in the study of Scottish cultural history. But you then pivot to to Maxwell's Demon to J. G. Fraser uh, and and thoughts about thoughts of a kind of um, savagery just beneath the surface that might pop up again any time. I wonder if you could say a word about that before we uh, move on. Well, what I was trying to do was show the ways in which this uh, these debates about race turn into uh, turn from the science of race into the science of anthropology, mm-hmm. and the ways in which uh, anthropology is based uh, fundamentally on a kind of racism or mm-hmm. on racism, indeed. Uh, but the way that that becomes a uh, generalized into a sense of a the threat uh, which the modern world faces mm. of the upsurge of ancient barbarism which still lurks under the surface of modern civilization mm. so it's not it's not that the uncivilized and the barbaric is out there in the empire uh-huh it's right here in the center <laughs> of the civilized world uh-huh. and just waiting its opportunity to return. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that return is almost inevitable. Uh, so although anthropology is founded on the notion of there are barbarous peoples out there whose lives we need to understand mm-hmm. from the perspective of our superior uh, development, in fact, it turns round and goes in the opposite direction and discovers that the barbarism is actually in ourselves. Mm. It's already there. And that uh, this is something which uh, we see in much late 19th century Scottish literature. Jekyll and Hyde, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, uh, Peter Pan, that uh, the, the linkage of modernity to barbarism and the return of barbarism is fundamental to how these late 19th century Scots see the relationship between their own culture and the primitive cultures which they are encountering out there from other to Scotland. It's it's fascinating to me that that you that you uh, so successfully use Maxwell's demon as a as a symbol for that too the the threat of sort of uh, chaos um, the laws of thermodynamics causing certain anxieties along these civilizational lines it had never occurred to me that those things might uh, belong together before. Well, I. I suppose I'm slightly obsessive about Maxwell's demon, (laughs) (laughs) but but it does seem to me that uh, the key turning point in 19th century intellectual culture is uh, Maxwell's challenge uh, to Lord Kelvin's view um, of uh, physics and thermodynamics, Mm -hmm. which Kelvin thought of as being a law a governed system. Mm-hmm. So there were laws and everything conformed to those laws. And what Maxwell suggested, and what later physics has tended to uh, justify, 
was that those laws weren't laws, they were simply statistical averages. Mm-hmm. And that there could be events that were entirely outside uh, the structure of the laws. Mm. And that those events were, in fact, the more interesting and more creative events. And that um, uh, chaos uh, was the foundation of uh, creation rather than order. And uh, Maxwell's demon was called Maxwell's demon by Lord Kelvin. It wasn't Maxwell who called it a demon. (laughs) And Kelvin called it a demon because it was so disruptive Mm -hmm. of all that he had believed uh, about the nature of physics. It's easy to see. Sorry. Yep, and uh, and so Maxwell's demon becomes a kind of image of that disruptive uh, undercurrent mm. in uh, Scottish culture in the nineteenth century. It's it's easy to see how that maps over um, maps over anxieties that perhaps this stadial model of history is not as stable as uh, it was it was assumed to have been before then. Um, I wonder if we could we could move on now to, to to chapter three with a wonderful wonderfully titled "Living Memory, Nostalgia, Necromancy, and Nostophobia." Uh, I wonder if you give us a, a brief overview of your concerns there, and perhaps again a little bit of a unpacking of the, the the definitions of those terms: nostalgia, necromancy, and nostophobia, because they they they're given some emphasis in the chapter itself. Well. My argument in the early part of the book is that when Scotland lost its uh, political superstructure Mm. uh, after the Union in 1707, the country existed primarily through memory, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Scots were concerned constantly to recapture the memory of uh, their culture as it had existed pre-1707, and that this uh, memory structure became essential to the country's sense of identity. And I argue that this is not just a Scottish thing, that this is in fact the nature of modernity, and Scotland was one of the first countries to experience modernity in this way. And that uh, living in a culture which is devoted to the continual uh, recapture of the memory of its past leads to certain kinds of crises. Uh, And those crises are defined in terms of nostalgia, Mm. the desire to return to the past, necromancy, the sense that the past erupts back into the present, potentially destructively, (laughs) and what I call nostrophobia, which is a a term I stole from an American sociologist, and uh, nostrophobia is hatred of one's homeland, uh, or uh, distrust, dislike, if not quite hatred of one's homeland. And uh, what I suggest is that... um, Scottish culture in the 19th century has been misread because nostalgia is taken to be an escape from the modern world rather than a way of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. That necromancy is a a failure of stadial history Mm -hmm. and the idea of progress. And that 
agnostophobia comes to be the dominant uh, aspect of 20th century Scottish culture, precisely because Scotland is seen as a country so dominated by the memory of its past, it is incapable of dealing Mm. with the modern world. And that uh, the intellectuals, many of the intellectuals in Scotland in the 20th century, uh, think that Scottish culture is of no value because it is entirely past-oriented rather than future-oriented. And that a past-oriented culture is one from which you need to escape in order to uh, confront the issues of the future. And so I suggest that uh, many of the um, tropes, the rhetorical uh, figures that people use in writing about Scotland from the 1920s through to the 1960s are focused around this nostrophobic rejection of the cultural capital of Scotland's past and of the memories on which the nation has built its identity. Is is um, what's colloquially known as the, um, the the Scottish cringe, is that the kind of uh, folk knowledge version of this nostrophobia, would you say? Yeah, to, yeah. to, to, to a certain extent that's true, that uh, uh, the Scottish cringe is the <laughs> sense of an embarrassed acknowledgement that one is the product of a culture which has no value. That Yeah, that point about embarrassment really, I think, is will perhaps be very recognisable to, uh, to to scholars of, 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 of Scottish cultural history, but also just to, to, to Scots more widely. Uh-huh. Well, I, uh, I, think, uh, I think in that period between the First World War and the 1970s, there was a continuous assault upon what Scots uh, had founded their culture in the 19th century. So if you, if you chart uh, the academic articles on Robert Burns, mm-hmm. they go into total decline through the <laughs> 1930s and 40s. Uh, Scott is vilified from almost every direction. And uh, even... Even Hume uh, doesn't stand out in that period as a great figure of European thought. He's um, uh, he's basically an insignificant uh, person, uh, more concerned with avoiding Scotticisms than creating a yes. serious philosophy. And so you get a you get a whole culture from the 1920s through the 1970s when the Scottish past is just regarded as of no cultural value. To the nation's future. This is the um, the idea that Edwin Muir put into his uh, Scot- Scotland book, right about the an Edinburgh a vacuum at the heart. Yeah, that's that, that's a classic example yes. of that kind of nostrophobic uh-huh. uh, version of uh, the Scottish past. Uh, that Scotland is just an emptiness. Mm-hmm. That it's it's always such a confusing. Uh, element in modern uh, Scottish cultural history because at times people like Hugh McDermott are so careful to say that they are against, for instance, the reception of Burns rather than Burns himself. Uh, and, and so the, 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 the lines between what they're 
in favor of and what they're reacting against are sometimes not all that clearly drawn. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Edwin Muir uh, spent part of your time to recapture the value of Scottish ballads uh-huh. in his own poetry. Um, so these are these are mixed uh, responses, but by and large, uh, the assumption is that there is very little in the Scottish past that can be made relevant to the Scottish future unless you go back beyond the Reformation. Uh-huh. So for McDermott, it was back to Dunbar. Mm-hmm. And I think going back beyond the Reformation is the, the, the key issue in the earliest, early 20th century, because uh, Knox goes from being the father of the nation in histories of, written in the 19th century mm-hmm. to being the person who has repressed the nation Mm-hmm. in accounts of uh, Scotland's past in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, where Noxian uh, religion was the foundation of the nation in the 19th century, it becomes the destructive element in the national psyche in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so McDermott's uh, efforts were really to get back to a Scotland that had not been destructively affected by the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was true of Edwin Muir as well. Mm-hmm. And even uh, something like uh, George Davies' The Democratic Intellect, which is often uh, assumed to be a celebration of Scotland's distinction mm-hmm. in terms of its intellectual tradition, is actually a book about the death of that intellectual tradition. It's about mm-hmm. its failure. Mm-hmm. in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so the book becomes, uh, although it can be read as a celebration, it is also nostrophobic in the sense that it is about the failure of Scottish culture to manage to survive into the 20th century. And that takes us rather neatly onto chapter four, which is titled um, uh, Theosenia, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Theosenia, Openings to the Gods, in which you open with a study, uh, with, with that precise point about George Elder Davies' uh, work on, on, on Scotch metaphysics. Thank you for reminding me of that. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're still thinking in the same order in which the book was written, so that's, that's a good sign, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, so, yes, so, so what you I, wanted, from there to, what I wanted to do in this chapter was to uh, show the ways in which uh, Scottish writers had resisted mm-hmm. uh, the destructive aftermath of uh, Nostopia and the destructive aftermath of the 1979 referendum mm-hmm. by a, a creative energy that, as it were, reinvented Scotland uh, as a country uh, of the imagination, but an imagination which might turn into a reality Mm -hmm. one day. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about uh, the force of the imagination overcoming political circumstances for which there is no political outcome Mm -hmm. at that particular point in time. And and that notion of... um... 
of 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 overcoming those political uh, uh, disappointments in some quarters with with Scottish writers uh, by even just very provisionally allowing for the possibility of this this um, of of these ends being met, as you suggest, is beautifully wrapped up in that term uh, uh, theosinia, which you de- uh, define as the, as a practice of be of practicing hospitality to strangers because they could be the gods in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me a long time ago is that um, many of the writers of this period, the 1980s, 1990s, mm-hmm. um, are concerned with the arrival of strangers mm-hmm. and the possibility that those strangers would have powers that um, are unknown to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And that uh, these strangers are often, as it were, prefigurations of possibilities that um, mm. might be available to the nation in the future. But at the heart of this, I suppose, is uh, Ian Hamilton Finlay's garden at Stony Path, or Little Sparta. Yes. Um, and the fact that it is a place that is created to allow the gods to return, in other words, to recover the sacred Mm -hmm. uh, in a modern environment, and um, to see the sacred as essential to the health of a community, a nation. Mm -hmm. And that, um, uh, if you like, I suppose, I don't say this in the book, I don't think, but if you (laughs) like, uh, that the failure of Christianity in the second half of the 20th century, which is also the failure of the Church of Scotland in many respects, mm-hmm. turns into the uh, recovery of a different sense of what the sacred might mean and where it might come from and how it might transform our current existence. This uh, this idea of a, of a, of a prefiguration is really striking uh, to me um though those who study these kinds of things will know that the argument around um scottish parliamentary devolution is one that's uh, has historically especially in the sort of uh, uh 80s and 90s been made around the terms of well before we had a a Scottish Parliament, we had a Parliament of novels or the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of Shelley line about poets being legislators of the world. But the way you frame it here is uh, suggests that it's less uh, purposeful, more provisional, a little bit more deliberative, which is, uh, is a really interesting inflection on that in, in my book. Uh, please correct me if I'm misunderstanding uh, the point there. No, um, I I think that's right. It's not um, it's not that all the writers were committed to uh-huh. a Scottish Parliament or a Scottish independence. Mm-hmm. It's that they were committed to uh, finding a way towards alternative futures, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. could be uh, alternative futures within the current political world. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it doesn't require that you have a Scottish Parliament in mm-hmm. order to fulfil those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But that um, the, the, the status of Scottish politics post-1979 mm-hmm. encouraged writers to go in search of alternatives uh, to politics as the way in which to uh, control, uh, create, shape the future. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, I was... 
going to save this question till, till, till after we discuss the final chapter, but it's, it seems so appropriate to this moment right now. I, I wonder, in the latter part of chapter four there, you discuss um, the work of uh, uh, late Muriel Spark uh, work, which uh, had laterally not been taken into account in uh, describing her, her output and her relationship with Scotland, Scotland and the imagination. You, you discuss in some depth Kenneth White's uh, poetry uh, and his essays and uh, some of Edwin Morgan's translations, but um, and Lockhead, Neen Hamilton Finlay and James Kelman. But uh, the point you just made about these sort of the idea of a proliferation of possible futures being explored here, that's something that really has animated a lot of people, I think, uh, on the run-up to, well, since 2007 when the SNP won a majority at the Scottish uh, Parliament, uh, when a referendum suddenly looked likely again, right through to the, the present, I would say. And I wonder if you had, uh, I'd just be interested to see what you thought about the forms, that idea of Scotland being a site of 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 uh, a broad horizon of possible Scotlands in our political discourse. If you have anything to say about the how that sits currently in two thousand eighteen, well, I think um, uh, one of the problems in two thousand and fourteen was that the version of the future was forward by uh, the SNP and mm-hmm. by Alex Salmond. Mm-hmm. was almost entirely determined by economics. Uh-huh. That it was an entirely econo- economic, economistic version of Scotland's future. Uh, as uh, dynamics of the independence movement were largely cultural mm-hmm. rather than economistic. Mm-hmm. And I think the mismatch between the politics <laughs> and the popular cultural upsurge was one of the weaknesses of what happened in yes. 2014. And that um, uh, the danger, I think, for a nationalist party is to assume that it can read the future. And of course, <laughs> within, within weeks of uh, the 2014 referendum, the oil price had collapsed, yes. and the whole economistic uh, version of Scotland that was mm-hmm. proposed had disappeared, mm-hmm. which allowed people who were against independence to say, well, there you go. Yes. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose what uh, I'm trying to suggest in the book is that um, the whole issue of independence has a much broader relevance mm-hmm. than just the economy. And that the broader relevance is something which politics ought to take into account if it is actually going to offer us a, a political future which is mm-hmm. open to many possible alternative futures, but futures which we get to choose rather yes. than we get imposed on us. And that um, uh, the writers and the artists were feeling their way towards those different kinds of possible futures mm-hmm. in ways that the politicians failed to. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a strange thing when you come to consider the uh, the role of a broad horizon of possible Scotlands in the future in the literary imagination, and then put that next to uh, 
you know, civil service documents or parliamentary or political documents that describe in, in, in a sort of technocratic uh, focus the kinds of small changes we could make to the tax base or something in, a, in, a, in an independent Scotland. The, the sort of poverty of imagination of that compared to the kinds of uh, cultural discussions you're talking about can be really, really striking, I think. Well, I think uh, this is the current problem for the Scottish National Party, mm-hmm. because as the governing party, it has gradually become managerialist in its uh, attitude to the country, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, has very little in the way of inspiration about why you should want to be an independent country, what mm-hmm. kinds of values that would allow you to assert uh, in the world and the ways in which that might uh, change people's consciousness of their sense of the meaning of being Scottish. Mm. Um, it almost all comes down to uh, how much tax do we raise, how much can we spend, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that kind of managerialism has, I think, uh, emptied much of the enthusiasm mm-hmm. of the independence movement in 2014. Yes. Or if it's not emptied it, it has, as it were, thrust a wedge between the enthusiasts who turn out in large numbers for marches and so on, Yes. and, uh, and the political party, mm-hmm. which really doesn't want to be seen as part of that kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, daily enthusiasm mm-hmm. for independence. So we're we're very much in the territory of your final chapter, um, unsettled will, culture, and Scottish independence, in which you set out a sort of uh, a little history of um, uh, the referenda on these issues. Uh, you describe the history of the Constitutional Convention and uh, sort of institutional cultural revival with the with the establishment of the Scottish Poetry Library. Uh, the publication of various important anthologies uh, and academic works and important collections and plays and what have you. But I, w- I wonder if, if you might say uh, uh, something about, I think our listeners might be interested to hear um, what Gordon Brown, Ian Rankin and Stephen Dedalus, uh, how they're connected in that final <laughs> chapter. <laughs> it seems an unlikely uh, combination. <laughs> the... Um... This is part of a discussion of uh, how we should think about Scottish identity in mm-hmm. the modern world. And uh, a historian, T.C. Smout, uh, published an article in the 1990s in which he said we ought to think of Scottish identity in terms of concentric circles. Yes. So there's the inner circle of me and my family. Uh, there's the circle of my local community, there's the circle of Scotland, there's the circle of the United Kingdom, and that all these circles fit neatly inside each other Yes. Uh, without any conflict or uh, disturbance. And uh, uh, Gordon Brown takes this model uh, from uh, an essay by E. Mm-hmm. And Chief Rankin says that he uh, wrote uh, in his uh, school book, Ian Rankin, Vice, uh, Scotland, uh, the United Kingdom, the universe, yes. or something of that kind. Uh-huh. And uh, Brown says, you know, this is uh, 
a version of what Stephen Dedalus uh, is supposed to write in uh, Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Mm-hmm. Except, if you look carefully at uh, uh, Stephen Dedalus's version, the United Kingdom is entirely missing. <laughs> it, is, it is Stephen Dedalus, uh, Congo's Ireland the universe, yes. uh, long before Irish independence, mm-hmm. the United Kingdom has been entirely written out mm-hmm. of Stephen Dedalus's sense of concentric circles. Mm-hmm. And uh, my suggestion is that concentric circles is just an entirely inappropriate way of trying to think about how the different elements of our individual identities relate to the political entities of which we are part. Mm-hmm. And I suggest that for many Scots, for instance, uh, their relationship to people in Canada is much closer than their relationship to people in the rest of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. In other words, that it's not a concentric circle, it's a, yes. it's a, it's a diagonal, it's a triangle <laughs> uh, that goes in an entirely different direction. And that uh, the whole notion of concentric circles is just a way of trying to uh, allow uh, certain kinds of people and certain kinds of political views to seem as though they are harmonious and natural mm-hmm. uh, and just part of um, the typical structure of a Newtonian world with all the planets circle yes. in nicely ordered ranks uh-huh. uh, at distances from the sun. And I, I suggest that this is just an entirely inappropriate way of thinking about modern identity mm. and is symptomatic of Gordon Brown's failure to be able to uh, link his Scottishness to his Britishness and that uh, all his efforts to promote Britishness when he was in government were entirely uh, without effect, because basically most of the people in England were not interested mm-hmm. in his kind of Britishness. And that um, uh, what Gordon Brown reveals is the extent to which Britishness was designed to allow the Scots to remain within the United Kingdom, but also remain distinctive yes. within it. So in, in, in opposition to this idea of harmony and order and a sort of Newtonian model of the, the, the university, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is this emphasis on dissent and disruption and um, undercurrents that threaten these kinds of orders. That seems to me an anxiety uh, that runs through the story you're telling in the book. Uh, now, was there anything else that you'd like to end on in relation to the wealth of the nation, uh, the book itself, before I ask what it is you're you're working on currently <laughs> well uh, the book ends uh, by going back to adam smith's essay on astronomy yes in which smith interestingly suggests that uh, when we go in search of the truth uh, scientific truth in fact what we're doing is constructing the world by the effects of our imagination, and that uh, Smith is extremely sceptical even about the most uh, apparently self-evident scientific truths, 
because they in fact are orders that we impose on the world rather than truths we discover about the world and that this is particularly the case with economics mm-hmm. and that uh, Smith points out that uh, the foundation of wealth in the modern world is gold yes but that gold has no value apart from our imagination of it mm-hmm. uh, it is not valuable in itself as something it's only valuable because there's so little of it mm-hmm. and it's our imagination which creates value it's not gold or money mm-hmm. and that um, the uh, the fundamentals of economics of the imagination and not objective science that's uh, that that brings us uh full circle i uh I, I do hope that one of the the byproducts of the book is to make a case uh for for the study of arts and humanities as something that in fact is greater than and contains all the other disciplines <laughs> that's at least <laughs> well uh, as my um as my colleagues British Academy for the last few weeks i there is no answer to the problem of Brexit from the M. Oh, sorry. I think there was a little crackle in the recording there. There was no answer to the, the problem of Brexit. Oh. STEM, from science, technology, etc. Uh-huh. You, can't, you can't solve the Brexit problem by <laughs> knowing more about science. No. You can only solve it by knowing about how human beings interact with each other in the world and what values they assume to be important in relation to things like borders. Absolutely. That's a, a lovely way to round out our discussion of the book, but I've taken up quite a lot of your time already, uh, Cairns. I wonder if we could uh, end up by, uh, if I just if you could tell us a little something about what you're working on currently. Uh, well, I suppose I'm working on things that spill over from the book in that I have, uh, since this book was published, written a book on Muriel Spark, oh, wonderful. Uh, which will be published next year, uh, which is called Muriel Spark, Centrism and the Art of Death, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> which tries to argue for Spark's importance uh, as a... Uh, as a thinker as well as a, an artist mm-hmm. and um, I'm currently writing a book on Kenneth White and uh, oh, on geopoetics uh, so those are both things which figure yes. in the wealth of the nation but are being developed in different ways in these two books well we'll uh, keep beyond, our eyes oh sorry <laughs> beyond that <laughs> my ambition uh, if I live long enough is to uh, uh, is to write um, a history of 19th century Scottish culture that will properly do justice to the great achievements of Scottish uh, Scottish publishing and Scottish writing uh, which I allude to in The Wealth of the Nation but Mm -hmm. I don't actually give the kind of detailed account that would clinch the case for that importance mm. well that it sounds like you have your work cut out for you Karen. there's a lot to do there i hope you'll um <laughs> uh, i hope you'll consider coming back to speak to us about those projects when they when they uh, appear in print i'd be happy to do that 
Uh, well, I think that's uh, all our time, but thank you so much for joining us, uh, Cairns. We've been talking about Professor Cairns Craig's uh, new book, The Wealth of the Nation, Scotland, Culture and Independence, out with Edinburgh University Press uh, this year in 2018. And good luck with the Saltire Awards. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.